0: We're here with the last episode um, with um, Lindsay Robertson. Um, and can you um, um, continue?
1: Sure. Yes, yeah, so I think today we're going to visit briefly about <clears throat> congressional plenary power and the case of Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock from 1903. Uh, this is a, a doctrine that has had a long uh, and checkered history in federal Indian policy. Uh, the plenary power doctrine basically says that Congress uh, is in charge when it comes to Indian affairs and can legislate over tribes uh, across a wide range of areas. the um, The case came from uh, the the rule, at any rate, was named plenary power doctrine in the case of Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock. Uh, in 1903. Uh, A little bit of background on that, the Kiowa, Comanche, and uh, Apache tribes in western Oklahoma uh, had a reservation secured to them by the Treaty of Medicine Creek from 1867. And when allotment rolled around, the federal government sat down with all three tribes to cut an allotment deal. uh, And eventually, uh, reached, uh, I guess, some at least nominal agreement on most issues, but one that they never reached agreement on was how much the tribes are going to be paid for the, what they call the surplus lands, the lands that weren't going to be allotted to tribal citizens. Uh, the federal government um, had uh, one figure, which was fairly low. The tribes had a figure which was much, much higher. Uh, and in the end, Uh, At the end of the negotiation, the tribes thought that what they had agreed to was to refer the question of how much would be paid for these lands to Congress. But in fact, what the uh, executive did, the federal negotiators did, was to stick their figure into the agreement and then get Congress to pass that as a statute. Lone Wolf uh, was a Kiowa chief. Uh, he, uh, representing the tribes, uh, got on a train, went to Washington to complain. Uh, the Bureau, hard to say they were sympathetic, but they listened to him. Uh, and Apparently, it was while he was there that he realized there was a problem with the whole deal from the beginning. The treaty had required that any future land sessions by the tribes uh, be uh, agreed to by three-quarters of the adult male tribal members. and. Lone Wolf said, can I see the list, you know, because I know you went around hunting for signatures, but when they showed it to him and he knew immediately that uh, this was not three quarters of the adult male tribal members, um, this was way short uh, of that. And, uh, and that meant that the whole purchase was invalid. That, that was Lone Wolf's position and it was certainly the case that he was right uh, as far as the treaty was concerned. So he ended up filing a lawsuit to get the statute invalidated and the Supreme Court ultimately got the case and they looked at it and they they couldn't disagree with Lone Wolf about the facts. They said, yeah, I mean, it does look like there weren't enough signatures. So the question is, is this statute that Congress passed valid in the face of this clear violation of the treaty? And this is the first time the Supreme Court had squarely addressed that question. Does Congress have the power to breach Indian treaties, treaties with tribes? Uh, And the court here said, no, yeah, actually, we think they do. And they do because they are the guardian for the tribes. That was a rule that the court had adopted uh, officially as a matter of policy in the 1880s in a case called Kagama. And uh, as guardian, they get to do what they want. Their power uh, over Indian affairs is plenary. That's the word they chose to use. Well, says Lone Wolf, to finish this case up, if they're acting as guardian, aren't they only supposed to use that plenary power when they're doing stuff that's in our best interest? And the court said, yeah, that's actually true, but we don't think that that question the question has congress acted in your best interest is one for us to answer uh, and if you want an answer to that if you want to complain that they aren't acting in your best interest the body to go through to is congress itself um in lawyer terms we say that the court decided that the question of congress's uh, good faith was a non-justiciable question meaning it wasn't a question that the that the judicial branch could decide So Lone Wolf got kicked out, and the door was opened for invalidation or what we call abrogation of Indian treaties all over the place with no real remedy. There was no way that tribes could go to courts to complain, Uh, and the court had said that Congress actually does have the power to do with, um, you know, your trail of broken treaties uh, in the wake of Lone Wolf sort of takes off with uh, vengeance. Uh, and uh, and the plenary power doctrine is established as a matter of Supreme Court law. Um, now, it 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 makes it'll make you feel a little bit better uh, to know that it's no longer the case that tribes can't sue the federal government when they don't think it's acted in good faith. That was uh, squarely uh, reversed in a decision called Delaware Tribal Business Committee versus Weeks in the 1970s. Um, so there are suits by tribes now for that. But it is still the case that the federal government exercises plenary power over Indian affairs. Again, we don't we don't know entirely what that means, what plenary means. Uh, some people argue it means that there are no limitations on the number of subject areas over which uh, Congress can legislate when we're talking about uh, tribes. Um, we do know that it, it means Congress can abrogate Indian treaties. Uh, and uh, but it's not entirely clear beyond that um, what it means but it's a it's a big and scary and powerful powerful thing
0: yeah I think that was one of my biggest concerns during the program was uh, I, I, I heard it too from other people was you know like can will the government abrogate treaties in the future you know and I don't know what are your thoughts on that you think they have stopped that do you think, do you think they might do it again they they actually
1: yeah they actually abrogate treaties all the time um and it's not quite in in that way like you know erasing a requirement of tribal consent before land's taken but every time congress passes what we call a statute of general applicability which is to say a statute that applies on its face to everybody like um Uh, you know, controlled substances, it's illegal to sell heroin. Okay, so Congress passes that statute. And you got to ask the question, does this apply to tribes? Um, Or Congress passes, um, here's one that's been in the news this week, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. That's the act that says you got to have hand washing signs in bathrooms for, you know, in safe workplace uh, conditions for employees and stuff like that. Question, Do tribes have to follow that? Uh, Or um, the National Labor Relations Act says that workers get to unionize and collectively bargain and stuff. Is that true for tribal employees? Uh, And those are all questions of abrogation. Um, And the way that the courts answer them is they first look at the treaties and all the treaties contemplate that the tribes are going to have their own governments. So, um, yeah, tribes, it's invariably the case have a treaty right not to follow whatever these federal rules are. Um, So then part two is, well, that's true. But when Congress passed this, this particular statute, like let's take the national labor relations act. um, We know they have the power to abrogate uh, treaties. Um, Did they do so here? And, and the test that the court, Uh, has decided to adopt says that we look at um, at the federal statute and if it clearly evidences an intent to abrogate uh, tribes treaty right then the right is abrogated and as you can imagine almost every time congress legislates um, the question could theoretically come up well does this apply to the tribes or not And uh, and it doesn't always get litigated. Uh, Lots of times tribes just say, let's just assume it doesn't until they come after us. And then they don't because it doesn't occur to the federal government that there are tribal governments out there. But every now and again, it does. It did with National Labor Relations Act during the Obama administration. The National Labor Relations Board picked a bunch of tribal casinos and tried to charge them with violating the union rights. That, uh they said tribal casino employees were entitled to under the National Labor Relations Act. And so that analysis that I just talked about and that we talked about in the program um, had to be undertaken. Uh, you know, did they is there evidence that they thought about it uh, and intended to abrogate or not? And there the courts have decided that they didn't intend to abrogate. And so that right not to have unionized casino workforces um, in tribal casinos, um, that treaty right was uh, was protected. Um, it, it's always you know because that power is there. Uh, it's always it is always something to look out for. Um, I, I don't know if uh, there's uh, there seem there certainly seems to be in Congress an increased awareness that there are tribal governments out there, and uh, and hopefully a greater awareness of the need to uh, to protect treaty rights when they, you know, kind of willy nilly pass these statutes that seem on their face to apply to everybody. But with a little thought, uh, they could um, certainly make it clearer that they're not intended to apply to tribal governments.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, quick question. Do you feel like UNDRIP helps against abrogation of treaties or do you think <clears throat> it
1: doesn't? I do. I'm not sure it helps as a matter of substantive law. Like, I don't know that you could go into a court in the US, for instance, and say, you can't do that because of the UN Declaration, the rights of indigenous peoples. But it certainly made people more aware, including people in government, of tribal rights. And and I think awareness is, that's 90% of the game. Uh, You know, just sort of awareness and education combined with a respectful attitude you know if you push that on congress and and under it really i think does that um you know the more people learn the more people are aware they're you know kind of wow and and then they're much less likely to stumble into a treaty abrogation situation
0: okay well well thank you for your time for this you know short series and i appreciate it you know um for you coming on the show
1: well, it's been and it's been a real pleasure. Um, I will. You you, um, you asked me one question a while ago, and maybe I'll, I can close with that if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, it was a big question about um, sovereignty. Um, you know what what can what can we do? What can uh, tribal citizens do to 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 secure their sovereignty, to protect their sovereignty uh, in the face of you know the sorts of threats that we've been talking about. Um, and I thought about that for a while, and I and I suggestions uh, for people who are interested in working to protect um, and maybe enrich uh, tribal sovereignty. the The first is uh, to understand it, um, which is to say, uh, you know, as a as a as a matter of history, you know, understand what's happened in the past and why, understand what the rules are. Um, governing the scope of tribal sovereignty that's possible right now. Um, You know, tribes, for the most part, can't prosecute non-Indians. Okay, that's something to know when you're thinking about setting up a system. So learning the rules, I think, is step one, just educating yourself. Step two is, is taking that sovereignty that you now understand and exercising it. Um, you know, a lot of tribes, there's a lot of stuff that tribal governments can do that they don't. Uh, you know, there are uh, enhanced criminal sentencing opportunities. There uh, are opportunities to take control of federal programs and run them themselves under the Self-Determination uh, Act. Uh, there are um, opportunities under the environmental statutes to take control of, of uh, protecting the, the tribe's environment. Um, with federal support, um, but to do it themselves. And so I think first learn the, learn the limits, understand how the rules work, then ex- uh step, I guess, uh, would be then to ex- expand it, uh, sort of run with it. Um, you know, once you know what the rules are and you've had uh, uh, an opportunity to, to really function as fully as possible, under the existing world order, uh, as a tribe, um, then you show up in in Congress or in the courts and say, you know, we're we're going to do more now, uh, and and push back, and and a lot of tribes have done this uh, with great success. You know, one of the 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 modern success stories, and I'll, I'll close with this, is uh, in 2013. You know, I mentioned the Supreme Court decided this was in the 70s that uh, in a case called Oliphant versus Quamish Indian tribe, that the the tribal courts couldn't uh, prosecute non-Indians. Well, in 2013, uh, tribes went to Congress and said, you know, there are a lot of uh, non-native men who are committing acts of domestic violence against native women, and we want the power to prosecute them. And Congress said, we're persuaded, Uh, and so We've just now, this is in the last seven years, seen movement on the part of tribal uh, courts into prosecuting non, non-Indians, non non-Native people. Um, those are the sorts of steps that, you know, you just keep pushing farther and farther and farther in different areas as they strike you as important. Um, but the path is laid out. You know, the, the way is there for tribes to reclaim more and more of their original sovereignty, um, and of course, this is happening against a backdrop of increased international awareness of the rights of indigenous peoples globally, which makes for potentially pressure coming from from two sides. Uh, and and I think if you know if if, if I were um, you know maybe one of your listeners who was trying to think well, what can I do, um, I think those are the those are the campaigns I would I would think about working on. Um, expanding understanding exercising and expanding sovereignty at the tribal level, and then uh maybe um, figuring out how to make use of the international system in order to work work it from the outside
0: yeah, I think that's this is the the reason why I want to do this series is because even within you know Indian country, there was this notion that our sovereignty came from the u s government there's always a lot of like little like like weird you know people like stereotypes people think you know things people say all the time like you know our sovereignty comes from the government like <clears throat> enrollment is not is, you know is 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 unindian an and whatever and i'm like you know we need our sovereignty and so to you know move past the uh, misconceptions of our about our sovereignty i wanted to do this series you know and uh, it's just I don't know. Like I feel like, you know, if if, if natives don't sometimes understand our sovereignty, you know, more non natives are not gonna understand it as well. You know? And yes. So <laughs> that's the hard part. So I think we need to be like on top of it at all times. But yeah,
1: it's hard. Well, I applaud you for I applaud you for doing it. And uh and anybody who's interested, um you can you're welcome to share this too. Um in Learning about the um the master's program oh in, yes uh, indigenous people's law they're welcome to um if they're if they're in your audience they're welcome to contact me directly if they want to and um we'll we'll make sure they get information about it
0: okay, yeah, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you know your the knowledge you give and i i i hope people understand <laughs> sovereignty so <laughs> so I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I do
1: too uh, and I appreciate I appreciate all you're doing. Keep up the good work.
0: Okay. Thank you.